please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which of course is the great resurrection chapter. I just want to read a few verses beginning from verse 12. And uh, we welcome those of you who are watching online as well, uh, who perhaps couldn't be here in person today, but we're glad that you're tuning in. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verse 12. Paul said, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Amen. In just over three years, this Galilean rabbi, this Nazarene and his followers had risen to great prominence in Israel. And uh, countless miracles were done. Multitudes followed Jesus of Nazareth. And for a long time now, the, the religious Jews uh, who were frightened of his ever-increasing popularity. And also Jesus uh, denounced them again and again for their religious hypocrisy, which he hated. And because of that, then they plotted how they might put him to death. And finding a willing traitor among his band of disciples, they soon planned an arrest and a trial. In fact, it was several trials. And what a farce those trials were. It was a mockery of common justice. There were kangaroo courts built on lies, but it served their plans just as well. Having boxed Pilate into a corner, it was he who gave the order for Christ's crucifixion. And all too soon it was over, and his lifeless body lay in a cold, dark tomb. And now this messianic imposter uh, his, was out of the way. His disciples were scattered to the four winds. And as far as the religious Jews were concerned, everybody could get back to business as usual, to normal religious life. And so they congratulated themselves on the job well done. Jesus and his brand of religion was now dead. And there was just one final detail that had to be addressed. Because while he was alive, he raised people from the dead, at least three is recorded. And he wasn't the only one that raised from the dead, Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. They also raised people from the dead. But Jesus said that he would rise again from the dead on the third day. Now, it's one thing for a living man to raise somebody from the dead, but for a dead man to raise himself from the dead, well, that's just ridiculous. That's just impossible. And they certainly did not believe it would happen. But they remembered that he said it would happen. And so they assumed wrongly in the end that his disciples would also remember that. And because if they remembered that, then they would, they, would, they would fake a resurrection of Jesus. And so they went to Pilate to try to address this problem. And in Matthew 27, 
verse 62 to 66. Let me just read it. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now isn't it amazing that Jesus' friends, his disciples, they did not remember, they completely forgot that he said he would rise on the third day. It was not even remotely in their thinking, but it was in the thinking of his enemies. They remembered he said that. Now you see, we as believers today, oftentimes in a crisis, we forget the promises of God. We forget what Jesus told us. We forget in the light what the Lord told us in the dark. And they were exactly the same. But no stone could entomb him. No seal could secure him. No grave could hold him. Nothing in heaven or earth or under the earth could stop Jesus Christ rising from the dead according to the scriptures on the third day. Nothing. It was inevitable. It was impossible for him not to be raised from the dead. Once he said it is finished, once he died and breathed his last and they put him in that tomb, nothing could stop him rising again from the dead. This, looking back, was the defining moment in Christianity. This changed everything. In fact, it's the defining moment in all of human history. The two great hinges that all human history swing upon are the cross and the resurrection. Now, without the resurrection of Jesus, then our Bible is worthless, our prayers are pointless, our message is meaningless. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus, Paul said, it is futile, it is empty, it's just a waste of time. Now the difference between Christianity and all other religions is that Christianity is the only religion that's founded upon the resurrection of its founder. The only one. Not a Buddhist in the world believes that Buddha rose again from the dead. Not one Muslim in the world believes that their great prophet Muhammad, whom they adore, raised, was raised from the dead. Not one. But every Bible-believing Christian the world over, every one of us believe for sure that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead the third day according to the Scriptures. The book of Acts has 13 sermons, seven by Paul, five by Peter, and one by Stephen. And every one of those sermons, every one of them, tell us and assure us that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's still in the business of changing lives even to this very day. Glory to God. The resurrection was mentioned more than 100 times in the New Testament. Those early believers loved to think and talk and testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was monumental to them. It was vital. It was absolutely the greatest thing that ever happened to them. 
That was central to everything they believed. Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.32, he said, This Jesus God has raised up of whom we are all witnesses. We have seen him. We know he's alive. And of course, Paul said, If Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. It was a big, big thing in the early church. It's a shame that so many so-called ministers today, people behind pulpit that do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many of the Church of England ministers do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, do not believe in the virgin birth, don't believe in it at all. But how can you be saved? How could you be a born-again believer if you did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, you're wasting your time. We might as well put a lock on the door, lock up our Bibles, put a lock on the door, and go out and live like the devil. Might as well, because it'll be meaningless without the resurrection. Consider this morning the overwhelming evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. In those 40 days after his death and before his ascension, he appeared physically, bodily, 12 times to his disciples and to others. What a body of evidence we have that Jesus rose from the dead. The first one, of course, was Mary Magdalene, wasn't it, in the garden. She was the first one to see Jesus had risen from the dead. He was the first woman also. And then Peter was the first apostle to see Jesus had risen from the dead. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 to 8. Let me read it. And that he was seen by Cephas, or by Peter, that means, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then all of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now, I notice in his report to the Corinthians, he doesn't mention the woman at all. Because in those time, in that era, in that culture, woman's testimony was not credible. They were not even allowed to testify in a court of law. So Paul doesn't put the woman in. But Jesus made sure that we would know that the very first witness to his resurrection was a woman, Mary Magdalene. And she was honored in that incredible way. Now, without going into the exact timetable and timeline of these appearances or without going into all of them, there's too many, I want to draw our attention to just a few of the eyewitness accounts as proof of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Thomas. That first Sunday, that resurrection day, that evening, 10 of his disciples were gathered in a room. The doors were locked. Judas had committed suicide. He had hung himself. Thomas was not there, but the ten were there. And we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. It doesn't actually tell us, so we can only surmise. surmise. Perhaps he felt, do you know what? I don't really want to go there with those guys. I mean, I've been with them for three years. I know what they're like. And, you know, and, and James and John, they just want to have the preeminence. And, and Peter, well, everybody knows what Peter's like. He just wants to give his opinion whether you want to hear it or not. He's going to give it. So I don't really want to go there because Jesus is not going to be there. So what's the point? Or maybe he was just so despondent. Maybe just so brokenhearted. Maybe just felt, I, I, I can't even think of going there. 
you know, it's a pity because he missed a tremendous thing. You know, over the years, and I've been a pastor many, many decades, and I've lost count of the excuses that people give for not going to church. Such weak and silly. I mean, I've, I could write a book of the excuses I've heard. And Thomas didn't go. But Jesus appeared right in the midst of them. <laughs> right in their midst. Door didn't need to be opened, didn't need to be unlocked. He just bang, suddenly he was just right there. I mean, that must have scared the living daylights out of them. <laughs> that certainly would have scared me. And then when they settled down, suddenly they realized, hey, he's alive and he's here. Now I like what John Phillips says regarding Thomas. He said about Mary Magdalene, Philip said, you know, it, it was the resurrection to her was a question of the heart because it wasn't her faith that drew her to the tomb because she didn't have any faith at that point in the resurrection. None of them had. Not one of them believed in the resurrection of Christ. So it wasn't her faith. And it wasn't hope either. Remember the two in the road to Emmaus, that seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and how Jesus resurrected Jesus, joined them on that journey, and, and God withheld from their eyes so that they didn't recognize him at the start. And he says, what are you talking about? Why are you so sad? And he says, well, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Do you not know what happened in Jerusalem? You don't know about Jesus of Nazareth, the man were, mighty in word and deed, a, a great prophet. And then he says, and we hoped, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel at this time. We had hoped. But that hope was gone. So it wasn't faith or hope that brought Mary to the tomb. It was her heart. It was love. She just loved Jesus. And she was going to do what she could for him regarding his burial. And then he says about John, it was resurrection, the question of the mind. Do you remember whenever the word came back, the tomb had been rolled, the tomb had, the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, and Peter and John ran to the tomb, and John outran Peter, because he was probably a bit younger, but he didn't go in. But Peter, he came then, and he just barged right past John, just right in, that's Peter, isn't it? And then John plucked a little bit of courage up, and he went in, and it says, and when he saw the grave clothes, he believed. When he saw the grave clothes, he says he didn't yet know about the resurrection, the scripture about the resurrection, but when he saw the grave clothes, he believed. He could do nothing else. You see, those grave clothes, they weren't, they weren't ripped off. You remember Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, how they came and they brought 100 pounds worth of precious spices and then they wrapped those cloths around Jesus, intermingled with the spices. And, and so they had him like, like a mummy, all wrapped and all those spices. Uh, but whenever John looked in, the napkin that was around his face was taken away and he could see there was nobody in that. He could see the form of a human body. I mean, those, those cloths weren't ripped apart. They were all intact. But Jesus wasn't in them. He had moved right out of them. And when he saw that, his reasoning, his logic, his mind could accept nothing else, only Jesus has risen from the dead. Yeah. I can see that with the grave clothes. And the stone had been rolled away. That wasn't to let Jesus out. He just didn't roll the stone and let him out. The same Jesus that moved through those grave clothes could just move through a big stone. It didn't. 
they moved that stone not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. So they could see. So John could see. And then he said with Peter, it was a question of the conscience. He had been the one who denied Jesus three times. I don't even know the man. And he swore an oath. Can you imagine? And whenever the rooster crowed, Jesus just turned around at that trial and looked right at him. And whenever their eyes met, Peter just broke. And he went bitterly and he went out. And I'm sure he never slept a wink. His conscience tortured him and haunted him. But what he had done, the shame, the ignominy of letting Jesus die, all his proud boasting and bragging came to nothing. He was just as frightened as the rest of them when it pushed him to shove. But when Jesus met him, he dealt with that conscience. But Philip said, with Mary it was the heart, with John it was the mind, with Peter it was the conscience, but with Thomas it was the will. I will not believe. It was a question of the will. But that next Sunday night, when those disciples met in that same room, for whatever reason, this time Thomas was with them. He maybe thought, you know what, I've nothing to lose. He didn't believe them. Because they told him, we have, we have met the Lord, we have seen him, we, we've been with him. He did not believe him. He says, I will not believe unless I see him myself, unless I put my finger in those nail prints, put my hand on the side, I will not believe. I mean, he was skeptical. He wasn't just going to believe a story. He had to see for himself. And so that night, suddenly he's there and Jesus appeared. And Jesus says, Thomas, look. He said, you wouldn't believe unless you see it. Look, I'm here. Come on, take your finger. Come on, put it in these nail prints. Come on, take your hand, put it in my side. Be not faithless, but believing. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He could not deny it anymore. You know, even to this very day, 2,000 years later, the resurrection will deal with the heart, it will deal with the mind, it will deal with the conscience, and it will deal with the will. And it's still changing lives today. Glory to God. And then there was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different father. You know, Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. He was the eldest, of course. But not one of them, in all those 33 plus years, not one of them believed that he was the Son of God or that he was the Messiah. They just did not believe it. I mean, they grew up under him, seeing his perfect live lived every day before him, before them. They saw that. They, they saw his ministry. They saw the miracles he did and they heard about them. Even the fact that he raised the dead, even one who had died for four days. And yet, none of that convinced them that he was the Messiah or that he was the Son of God. Nothing convinced them. Nothing. They just would not. Imagine Jesus for 33 years of his life and he got no help whatsoever, no encouragement from any of his siblings. Not once did they ever encourage him or believe in him. That must have been tough, but that's the way that it was.
until Jesus appeared to James. I suspect James was the most hard-headed, the most strong-willed among the, the lot of them. And he appeared to him first. And of course, when he appeared to him, then he could not deny who he was. He was indeed the Son of God. He was indeed the Messiah. And then whether he told the rest or whether Jesus appeared to the rest of his siblings, but they all believed. And they were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, all of them. They all believed. But it was the resurrection that changed their minds. It was the resurrection that did it. Nothing else would change their minds. Only the fact that he rose again from the dead and he stood there right in front of them and they believed. You know, James went on to be the great leader of the Jerusalem church. And his little epistle he, he wrote, he begins it by saying, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not James, a half-brother of Jesus. Not James, the younger brother of Jesus, but James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving him his place and his honor as the Lord Jesus Christ, as Lord and of the Anointed One. Glory to God. But it was the resurrection that made the difference, that changed everything. And then there's the Apostle Paul. Nobody could accuse Paul of making up a story about the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, before he was Paul, despised Jesus with a passion. He was the one who was the chief witness of Stephen, the first martyr. He was the one who got special permission, who went on behalf of the Sanhedrin to go to Damascus, to Syria, to imprison Christians and put some of them to death. That was how passionate he was against Jesus. So nobody could accuse him of making up a story about a resurrection. Nobody wanted to wipe out the sect of the Nazarenes more than Saul of Tarsus. Nobody like Paul and his status would embrace a lie. I mean, he had too much to lose. I mean, he was the poster boy for killing Christians. I mean, he was one of the chief ones to do it. And I mean, a great standing within the, the religious Jews. And to give all of that up for a lie? Of course not. He would never do that. But whenever he met Jesus, the risen Christ, on the road to Damascus, what was it he says? Lord... What do you want me to do? What a transformation. What a radical change in an instant when he saw the Lord. Suddenly, he was instantly changed forever and became the greatest missionary evangelist that ever lived. And wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. It was the resurrection did it. Nothing else. And then Paul talks about the 500 1 Corinthians 15 and 6. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Do you ever wonder why the 500 met at once? It doesn't say, so you can only guess. My guess would be, for what it's worth, is that they had heard. Their rumor had gone out. I mean, it spread like wildfire that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead and he's alive and he's in Jerusalem. You know, and I can imagine them meeting together to discuss this and saying to each other, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Did you talk to Peter? 
Did you talk to John? Is it true? Can we really believe this? And there they were discussing and talking, and suddenly Jesus appears right in their very midst, all 500 of them. What a moment that must have been. There must have been a big cheer go up. There must have been hallelujahs were shouted all over the place. What a moment that must have been when Jesus just appeared in their midst. Now Paul is writing some 30 years later. He says, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So obviously some of the older ones had died and went on to be with the Lord, but the younger ones had still been around. And I would imagine that Paul, having any opportunity he could get, would want to talk to those eyewitnesses and say, what did you see? What was he like? What did he say to you? How did you feel when he appeared? Remember, he met him on the road to Damascus. He knew his experience. He would want to know theirs too. An ounce of experience is better than a ton of theory, isn't it? And they had the experience. And then there was Peter. Nothing, only the resurrection, can explain the complete turnaround of Peter. All during Christ's trial, all during his crucifixion, Peter was a card. A complete card. A total object failure of a disciple. Really, really was. All his bragging, all his boasting came to nothing. He was just as scared as all the rest of the disciples. Every bit. So what could change this broken shell of a man? How could he ever recover from the shame and the ignominy of what he had done? Nothing but the resurrection can account for it. Jesus met him and forgave him and embraced him. And made a mighty man of God out of it. You know, on the day of Pentecost, he was the chief man. In fact, for the first half of the book of Acts, he's the main man. He's the chief one. And what a mighty evangelist he was for Christ. And in the end, not only did he live for his Savior, but he died for him. In the end, he was crucified, and he insisted to be crucified upside down with deference to Christ crucified the proper way. The resurrection changed everything. And then the martyrdom of the apostles. If the resurrection was a lie, if it was a, just a fabrication, just a made-up story, why would all these men who ran for their lives when Jesus was being crucified who completely just ran and hid when Jesus was dead and buried. Why would they now live and be prepared to die for a lie? That's right. it, it, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, somebody could live and die for a lie if they believed it was the truth and they were deceived enough that it was the truth, even though it was a lie. Somebody could live for a lie if it was to their advantage, if, if they could gain from it but they wouldn't die for that lie. When there's no advantage, there's no gain, and there was only death, they wouldn't believe it anymore. They wouldn't accept that. They would reject that. So only the resurrection would cause these men not just to live for Jesus, but to die for him. And they all, except John, they all died a martyr's death. Only the resurrection can explain that. And there's people all over the world today, in this past recent years, we saw it on our television, people beheaded 
because they owned the name of Jesus and they were prepared to die for him. There's more martyrs today than there's ever been in history. And then there was the witness of the explosive growth of the church. And 50 days only after Jesus' passion on the cross until Pentecost, and 50 days only, then suddenly, in one day, 3,000 get saved. And then 5,000 get saved. That's 8,000. Then all Jerusalem is filled with their doctrine. And then Judea and Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And they began to spread out and take the message of Christ's glorious gospel. And, and within 50 years only, there was a Christian church in every major city of the Roman Empire in just 50 years. And in the first three centuries after Christ, four million Christians were buried in the catacombs around the city of Rome. The catacombs were the subterranean passageways and vaults. You know, the, the Romans, they cremated, the Egyptians mummified, but the Jews and the Christians buried. And so they weren't allowed to be buried inside Rome, inside the city precincts. So they dug these deep down in, they dug these tunnels, these passageways and these areas where there was niches dug out of the face of the rock deep down in the earth where they put the dead in. They're dead. Because infantry mortality rate was high in Rome at that time. There's lots. I've stood, I've been in those catacombs. I've stood there. I've seen them. Lots of little ones where children were buried. And then there's ones where adults were buried. And then ones where the whole family was buried. Both Christians and Jews alike. Four million Christians the first three centuries, all buried there. There's 40 catacombs. Some of them are open to tourists. You can go and visit them. If you're ever in Rome, I would encourage you to go and see them. And then, and then, it's reported that in the first three centuries, 20 million Christians were in the Roman Empire. 20 million. Can you imagine that? And now today, according to Pew Research Center, over two and a half billion people around the world call themselves Christian. Amen. Two and a half billion. Imagine all this happened, began with just a handful of disillusioned, disappointed, frightened believers. Just a handful. And they were a mess. And yet Christ took them and he molded them and shaped them and forged them and filled them with power. And now that witness has gone over all the continents of the earth. And now there's two and a half billion people in this world who own the name of Jesus. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. Nothing, only the resurrection can account for that. If there had been no resurrection, there would be no church. We wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be listening today. We would be pagans. But the resurrection changed everything. A sign spoken of, we're coming to the finish here. Jesus made several remarkable claims about himself. He claimed that he was eternal, John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. He was the only man that was alive before he was born. He claimed he was sinless, John 8, 46. 
Who convinces me of sin? Who convicts me of sin, he said. Who convicts me of sin? You know, they tried, didn't they? They says he was a drunkard, he was a glutton, he was in league with Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, that he was a blasphemer. They accused him of everything. But there's no evidence, there's no proof of any of that at all. He was completely sinless. He claimed that he could forgive sins. Those religious Jews said, well, who can forgive sins? Only God alone. And that's true. They're right in that. And so he must have been claiming to be God when he, when he could forgive sins. You know, if you sin against me personally, and you come to me and, and truly repent and say, David, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that, I'm really sorry, please forgive me, then I can forgive you. But I can't forgive you all of your sins. <laughs> I can't forgive you every sin you ever committed. Only God can do that. Only Christ can do that. When you come to him and you truly repent, you say, Lord, forgive me all of my sins. Only he can do that. Nobody else can do it. Only he can do that. Only he has got that power. Then he claimed he was God. John 14 and 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. You know, that's why they accused him of blasphemy. You're making yourself out to be God. Yeah, he was God. And he told them so. Boy, that really, really angered them. For then he was challenged to give a sign to show that these things were true. And he refused. He just refused. I mean, thirty in those three years, he had given enough signs for anybody to believe. They didn't believe. But they were wanting a sign. They were wanting something spectacular. Just show us something big, a big sign. You know, the Bible doesn't say this, but you're probably thinking, well, Moses opened up the Red Sea and Elijah called fire down from heaven. So do something. Show us a sign just to prove who you are. He said, no. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Listen to this in Matthew 12, 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now we know what that means that's speaking of the death, uh, the death and, the, and the, the cross of Christ and the resurrection from the dead, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That's what that's speaking of. And that's what Jesus is pointing to, the resurrection. That's the sign. That's the greatest sign I can give you. It's the greatest sign that he ever gave. In fact, of all the signs he could have given, that's the one he chose. In Romans 1, 4, Paul said, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, how? By the resurrection from the dead. There's the sign. That's it. Now this evidence demands a verdict, doesn't it? It doesn't allow us to be neutral. Can't be neutral about this. Either Jesus rose from the dead, or he didn't rise from the dead. He's either a dead or he's alive. And if he's dead, Paul says, then all our believing is in vain. Our message is futile. But if he's alive, then we've got to do something about it. We can't be neutral. It demands a verdict. What's it going to be? We either live for him or we don't live for him, whether for him or against him. There's no neutrality here. 
We must choose one or the other. Our eternal future depends upon it. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. You know, I've been a pastor well over 40 years now. And I have conducted scores and scores and scores of funeral services. I mean, five in this past 10 months due to this pandemic. Scores and scores. And I can tell you, it makes a difference. When you're lowering into the ground the body of a believer, and you know that's not the end. You know at that moment, even though there's grief and even though there's sorrow because of the personal loss for a family, but you know that that person was never more alive than they are at that moment. You're just lowering the remains into that ground. But they, that person, they're alive. They're with Christ. As Paul says, it's far better. What a difference it is when you know that's a believer. I buried enough people that I couldn't say were believers. And I had, I had no hope of that. Yes, we grieve and we sorrow, but not as those without hope. Our hope is in the resurrection. Amen. And one day they will rise again. You know, that's why Paul says a burial, it's like planting a seed. And when you plant a seed, you're expecting something to come from that seed, aren't you? Come spring, that seed's going to bounce up and pop up. And it's the same when we bury the body of a believer. I tell you, when the trumpet blows, that body will be given new life and it will come up glory to God. And let me finish with this this morning. If you owe a debt... You get a bill. And if you pay that bill, clear that debt, you get a receipt. The receipt is the evidence that you paid the bill. The receipt wasn't the thing that paid the bill. It's just the evidence that the bill has been paid. Now, we owed God a massive debt. We had broken his laws over and over and over We were sinful, full of sin, indebted to a holy God. And we had no hope of ever paying off that debt. It was beyond our capability. But Jesus Christ, who owed nothing, who had no debt, he came to pay our debt. He came to go on that cross and to pay the debt that we couldn't pay, that he didn't owe. He came to pay it for us on our behalf. And when Jesus cried on that cross, it is finished. It was one word, tetelestai, which means paid in full. Our debt was paid in full. And the resurrection, when he rose again from the dead, that's the receipt that the debt has been paid in full. That's the evidence and the proof that what he did on the cross was more than enough to pay our debt. And the resurrection is the receipt that our debt has been paid. So every time you read about the resurrection, you sing about the resurrection, you think about the resurrection, you say, my debt has been paid. I've got the receipt. Glory to God. It's in the book here. I can see it. Glory to God. Amen. What a powerful Savior we have got today. What a glorious Savior that rose again from the dead, that right now is coming, is waiting to come back for us. You know, we talked about the evidence, those who saw him, but one day soon we are going to see him face to face. 
glory to God. And all that we have lived for and talked about and prayed about and worshipped, suddenly we're going to see him with our eyes. We will behold him. Glory to God. And what a moment that's going to be. Hallelujah. And we'll be with him for all eternity. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you rose again from the dead today. And I thank you that you have given us the evidence that our debt has been fully paid. All of our sins have been gone, all paid for by the blood of Jesus. And now the evidence is that you're risen from the dead. Thank you that you satisfied the demands of justice of the Father God. And Lord, you have made us free from all of that debt. It's all been wiped away and we're free to live for you. So we give you thanks. I pray for those who's watching today and listening today. I pray if they're not saved, that this Easter Resurrection Sunday, that this would be the day that they would turn to Christ and ask his forgiveness and trust him as Lord and Savior. I pray that they would do that today. Lord, I thank you for your mercies, for your goodness, for your grace in our lives. We thank you for everything you have done for us. You went to the cross. You died for us and you rose again for us and you're coming back for us. Thank you for this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.